0: Hi, I'm Brent Stafford, and this is RegWatch by RegulatorWatch.com. For the U.S. vaping industry, the past 12 months have been horrific. Countless vaping product retailers and many e-liquid manufacturers have shuttered operations in the wake of the so-called epidemic of teen vaping. The CDC's outright deception over the so-called vaping-related lung illness and following the economic destruction resulting from the COVID-19 pandemic lockdown. Now with just a little over a month left to meet the final deadline for the U.S. Food and Drug Administration's pre-market tobacco product application process, the U.S. vaping industry is bracing for yet another purge, which could destroy vaping as we know it. Joining us today on RegWatch is Amanda Wheeler, president of the Rocky Mountain Smoke-Free Alliance, executive director of the Arizona Smoke-Free Business Alliance, and co-owner of the vape retail chain JVapes eLiquid. Amanda, thanks for coming on the show.
1: Yeah, Brent, thank you for having me.
0: So Amanda, you've been involved with vape advocacy since 2014 at a local and state level, but it's really been in the past year that you've jumped on the national stage. What was it that drove you to take on the FDA?
1: Well, you know, Historically, our company gets involved in fights when we see that there's a problem that needs addressing. Um, you know, we were one of the founding members of our state group here in Arizona um, because we saw that that was a need that existed here in our state. Um, you know, about a year and a half ago, we saw a need for us to get active in Colorado, where a newly formed state group was being founded, and so we got involved in that. And you know, last summer, when when we saw that there was really some action needed on uh, PMTA reform, we decided to jump into that in a big way, and and we've been um, pretty consistently working on that for the last year.
0: What's the difference between national and local in terms of advocacy?
1: Um. You know, national is a lot more difficult. Um, There's a lot um, more big money at stake. There are a lot of more decision makers involved in setting policy. Um, Access is a little harder to get at the national level. So it is a bit more challenging. The bigger the fight, the bigger the challenges.
0: Fair enough. And let's talk a little bit about some of the things that are going on. Uh, Tell us about the Save the Vape rally in Washington, D.C.,
1: Yeah, so um, the rally is being put on by UVA, the United Vaping Alliance. Um, You know, I'm sure a lot of your viewers are familiar with the previous rally that they had put on last year in regards to saving flavors when there was talk of a national flavor ban. Uh, We saw that rally be very effective then. And so um, UVA's decided to host another rally um, to uh, advocate for PMTA reform. It's very timely, it's September 5th, four days before the PMTA deadline. And so we're all going to show up there in mass to get our message across to everyone in DC at FDA to, to show them you know, the faces of the people who are impacted by PMTA, uh, kind of how it will impact us and that there are a lot of people who deeply care about the topic.
0: So let's uh, explain to our viewers exactly what PMTA is, because as you know so well, not a lot of people have even complete information on it or even cursory information on it they just know of it
1: right well it's an extremely massive complicated topic um and to sort of wrap your brain around all the facets of that is an overwhelming job but basically pmta in a nutshell um Let's see, let's put this in a nutshell. Uh, It's a set of requirements and documentation testing that e-liquid manufacturers have to provide to FDA to show that our products are appropriate for the protection of public health. Um, It includes um, all sorts of testing for harmful or potentially harmful constituents, um, stability testing, aerosol testing, showing what chemicals are released when um, e-liquid is aerosolized. Uh, clinical trials, animal testing. uh, There's so much that's involved in it. Basically, um, just all the scientific data that FDA wants to make a determination whether or not a product is allowed to remain on the market.
0: And so the real crucial issue here is the fact that e-cigarettes were unregulated and still actually technically are uh, unregulated. They're in the process of becoming regulated. In some 2016, FDA deemed e-cigarettes to be a tobacco product i.e. a cigarette uh and so then now they dropped all this guidance last year on us and this table of contents here it really shows i mean this is a what is a 58 page document the guidance
1: yeah it's a 56 58 pages somewhere in that neighborhood it's it's very in-depth
0: right and so the idea here is that they're they're treating e-cigarettes into much the same degree as they would you know a brand new tobacco product in terms of saying, you know, having you prove that there's no detrimental effect on public health. Uh, and so we we'll dive into the, some of those thorny bits for us.
1: Um, sure, so um, the Tobacco Control Act in 2009 is what established this appropriate for the protection of public health standard that we have to demonstrate. And as you were saying, in 2016, when FDA deemed vaping products, tobacco products, that um, placed us subject to those PMTA requirements. And so that's how we found ourselves in this situation. Um, But it it is, it's very complicated. There's a lot that's involved in it. And um, the main problem that small manufacturers have and the majority of open vapor products are produced by small manufacturers is the expense that's associated with all of um, that scientific information, um, laboratory testing, conducting clinical trials, that all of those items are are far too expensive for your average uh, vapor company.
0: And is it really just also to not just about the expense, but is it a misapplication of kind of the regulatory approach here? Because this is a harm reduction product being treated as if it was a cancer killing tobacco product.
1: Uh, correct. You know, and, and the thing that I find very ironic about PMTA is that, you know, cigarettes are not having to go through that same process, you know, um, Altria doesn't have to go to the FDA and prove that that Marlboros are, you know, appropriate for the protection of public health because obviously they could never do that. Um, but uh, all vapor products are held to that standard uh, because there were no vapor products, you know, that I'm aware of that were on the market prior to 2007. Um, it's it's any products that, that were not on the market prior to 2007 that have to come in and, and meet this PMTA pathway.
0: That's right. That's right. And it's the thing that bothers me and everybody else, you know, because the grandfathering in of all of the other uh, legacy tobacco products, and then the force, you know, new tobacco products, so to speak, or ends products, which is electronics nicotine delivery systems, ends uh, to force ends products into this, you know, process is just so unfair
1: you know absolutely it is I think there are many different ways that FDA could go about evaluating the safety of vapor products and they've chosen the way that that it places the most burden on on small businesses on uh, the way that's going to be most difficult for small businesses to, to comply with
0: exactly so let's jump to uh, some news that was made this week uh, this is an article in The Wall Street Journal gonna get that right come on bring, give me my computer back here thank you. And smoking, cigarette smoking makes comeback during coronavirus pandemic. I'll just jot through a little bit of this, but Marlboro maker Altria says stimulus checks and e-cigarette restrictions are driving sales of traditional cigarettes. Americans are smoking more during the coronavirus pandemic because they are spending less time on travel and entertainment and have more opportunities to light up. They're also switching back to traditional cigarettes from vaping devices in the wake of federal restrictions on e-cigarette flavors. So what's happened here is that the decline that they were expecting to see didn't happen. There's still been some decline because e-cigarettes have been uh, eating the, their lunch for now several years. And this is the first real evidence that shows that all of these, you know, huge hits that vaping has taken from the epidemic teen vaping to the Evali, the lung disease, uh, so-called vaping related lung illness. And then of course the flavor bands that have come in the wake, the, relentless bashing by mainstream media and public health um, demonizing vaping and then of course the coronavirus and the pandemic and now we're seeing the real fruits of this result and that is people are going back to smoking there's no denying it Mm -hmm.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, and I, I was happy to to see that being covered by mainstream media uh, in the Wall Street Journal, because it, it is something that I don't think people talk about enough. You know, obviously, the folks out there that that are anti-vaping, that, that push to get all of these anti-vaping laws passed, of course they know that's going to be the effect, right? But but when we go into these legislative hearings and talk about that, you know, we're accused of being alarmist or extremist, but, but we do know, um, simply based on logic and reason, and now a number of precedents that have been established throughout the country, the kind of effect that these regulations have on consumers. And there there aren't good options for consumers in the wake of things like flavor bans, you know, so of, of course, you know, the path of least resistance for someone is going to be to go back to smoking. Um, you know, obviously the, the other alternatives are black market DIY, um, you know, which the, you know, the black market obviously is where we saw the Avali come from in the THC space. And so we don't want to see that same black market emerge. We don't want to see people going back to smoking. And I think it is good that it's a part of the national conversation on just how exactly these regulations are affecting consumer behaviors.
0: Exactly. And I'll just keep reading a little bit of this here. U.S. e-cigarette unit sales in the second quarter were down 14% from a year earlier. Adding that vaping's growth may pause over the next two years because the FDA is requiring e-cigarette manufacturers to submit all products for agency review by September or otherwise take them off the U.S. market. In April, Altria, and
1: how, how how telling that that's coming from Altria themselves, you know they they know the kind of effects that PMTA is going to have on the market, and that's that's one message that we're really trying to deliver to HHS is that that this is going to be uh, you know terrible for for consumers and businesses.
0: Exactly. So in April, Altria also noted that some adult vapors were switching back to cigarettes because of negative news coverage of e-cigarettes. Last year, amid an outbreak of a vaping-related lung illness, you which is not true, right? It's it's vaping-related when it comes to cannabis. U.S. health officials warned against the use of e-cigarettes. They later said that the ailment was linked not to e-cigarettes, but to vaping products containing marijuana or vitamin E oil. And we know that um, the CDC you know, held that lie for months and months and months past uh, the time. It was October 4th when FDA said, we can't participate in this anymore, in this lie, and came out completely and clearly instead of his cannabis related products black market cannabis related products what do you think of the cdc in uh, this u.s centers for disease control what's your opinion on their behavior with regard to the vaping related lung illness from last fall
1: it was nothing short of criminal the level of misinformation that was coming out of the cdc um you know, as a business owner, I can sit back and I can see exactly how it affected consumer behavior. It was it was very harmful. Um, you know, they, they told so many lies about vaping and spread so much false information that I think people didn't know what to believe. And so a lot of people thought the safest route was just to stop vaping entirely, which unfortunately led to a tremendous amount of people relapsing back to cigarette smoking. Um, and you know the the media cycle that that was coming out of that cdc information was an onslaught i think consumers were getting hammered with messaging you know around the clock that that vaping was going to kill them, um, which we know that nicotine vaping's never killed anybody. But according to the CDC, um, you know they were they were presenting this as if nicotine vaping was what was leading you know to these hospitalizations and deaths. When in reality, I think you know people in the nicotine space knew very early on that that there was a problem with certain additives that were being used in the THC black market space, um, and, and you know, we were communicating this information to the federal agencies, and it was just being willfully disregarded, in my opinion.
0: So let's give everybody kind of, because uh, we use a lot of acronyms on the show, and just in case there's people out there that don't know what HHS is, but that's the Department of Health and Human Services, and underneath HHS is the FDA, which is U.S. Food and Drug Administration, we have the CDC, Centers for Disease Control, what else are we missing,
1: Oh gosh, um, HHS regulates a lot of the the divisions uh, that have to do with with health and medicine, and all. I mean, there there's a lot under the HHS umbrella.
0: So you've been in direct discussion with officials at uh, HHS and FDA, I believe, and maybe even the Trump White House. Give our audience a little bit of an understanding of who you've been speaking with.
1: Oh sure, Um, so kind of as you had said earlier in the show, this is something that I've been working on for about a year, um, a little over a year exactly. Last July is when we, we started the Fight to Survive um, group with the initial letter that we had done. Um, And for anybody who's not aware of that, um, last summer we crafted a three page letter to HHS and FDA outlining all of the problems with uh, these pre-market tobacco applications, a PMTA, and why that's a problem for small business. And um, we did a big push over about a month long period, collecting signatures from various business owners around the country and um, when it was all said and done we had about 1453 business owners sign on to this letter Um, we did a lot of things with the letter um, during the um, annual conference that VTA puts on VTA is one of our national trade associations Um, VTA included it in the packet of materials that we distributed to Congress um, when we were having our day on the Hill. So the letter initially went to over 130 congressional offices, kind of hand delivered and explained by people in those states, you know, to their relevant uh, congressional representatives. And so that was one of the first things that we did with it. Um, We've presented it to the Small Business Administration um, to kind of let them know about the different issues that small business has with PMTA regulations um let's see what we've we've done a lot i'm trying to go in order here and it's it's hard to <laughs> keep everything in order because we've done so much in the last year um you know obviously we we sent a copy of this letter to fda and hhs um i i well let's talk for a second one talk for, of
0: the I, me, sorry amanda let me sure. interrupt you here for a sec what 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 are the what are the key things here that you're asking for how about I will ask you that
1: well, so this initial letter, I mean, we were really laying out the problem. We weren't at the point yet of offering a solution.
0: So what's the problem? Um, what's the problem so
1: then? The- The problem is that no small business in this entire industry can afford financially to comply with those PMTA testing requirements. I mean, we're talking about on the order of, you know, millions of dollars per SKU. And a small business like mine, we've got 1700 SKUs that we manufacture. We could not afford one PMTA on our products, much less a PMTA for all 1700 SKUs that we sell. And so we're outlining the problem of cost. Um, Through the cost associated with PMTA, we're really trying to highlight that the government is in effect giving big tobacco companies a government sanctioned monopoly over the vapor space. Because when you create a process that only big tobacco can afford to engage in, you're by default giving them a monopoly. And so that's what we really wanted to highlight is that this PMTA process will wipe out 14,000 small businesses around the country. Big tobacco companies will be the only ones who can afford it, which is highly ironic since, you know, big tobacco created and sold the products that created all the health harms that that vaping was established to, to help people get off of their products. but. Yet the government has set up this process where they will be the only companies that get to remain on the market if something doesn't change. And so that's 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 the letter is, you know, us asking them to change something so that we don't lose 14,000 businesses so that we don't lose 160,000 jobs. And so that, you know, those, you know, 13 million vapors across the country still have access to the products that they depend on to stay off cigarettes.
0: And a lot of small business owners here have signed this letter from last year. How many of these small businesses that signed this letter do you think have gone out of business or, or, or threatened to go out already just with all, everything that's already happened, not with PMTA yet kicked in?
1: You know, that's an excellent question. And it's not something I've gone through and counted, but I will tell you that a lot of business owners that that were in business this time last year when this letter was put together are no longer in business. Because as you covered, I mean, we had a series of, of very difficult events, um, you know, with Evoli, with um, you know uh, closures related to COVID, with business owners just not wanting to renew leases, with the PMTA deadlines coming up, you know, we've we've lost a tremendous amount of business owners from our industry over the last year.
0: Yeah, and the leases isn't that a big sticky wicket for a lot of small businesses. They the lease comes up and you're asked to sign another five year lease or three year lease. What do you do with so much uncertainty?
1: Oh, I mean, my husband and I just went through this scenario about two weeks ago, we had to renew a three year lease on our Oklahoma store. And I've never had so much anxiety about signing a lease because you know, if, if this PMTA deadline comes around and something doesn't change, you know, business owners are out of business and yet people are stuck with millions of dollars worth of commercial leases, um, that, that we're responsible for. And so I think that's a thing that weighs on a lot of business owners. You know, I've seen many people state that, that, you know that they're not going to be renewing leases when their leases come up for renewal that they'll be closing down. It's it's very tragic. That's a it's a terrible decision for a business owner to have to make.
0: So if the PMT doesn't ha- PMTA doesn't have any changes made to it. How devastating is it going to be for the US vaping industry?
1: Well, you know, I think it's definitely going to be devastating. Um, there's a lot of uncertainty that's still out there as far as what exactly is HHS and FDA, what are they going to do between now and the deadline? How are they going to enforce the deadline? Um, You know, because FDA does have a certain degree of enforcement discretion around, you know, taking action against certain products, and, and so there are a lot of these sort of questions that we don't really know the answer to. Um, I would say, as the guidance is written right now, it spells complete destruction. Um, if if they hold companies to these requirements in that fifty-plus page guidance that came out last summer, um, I don't I don't think there's a small um, business that I know of that can survive that um you know because of the work that i do i talk to a lot of companies about their pmta process i talk to a lot of consultants that help companies with the pmta process and i have yet to talk to anyone in the small business vaping sector that is able to financially complete all of the pmta requirements you know companies vary in their ability on how many of the requirements they can complete. There are some that can do more than others, but I haven't spoken to anyone yet that can get all the way there to the point of completing clinical trials and all of that sort of thing. Um, and so it, it really depends on, you know if they make changes to those PMTA requirements and, and how hard they choose to enforce on them, which you know that, that's right now, a lot of the work that we're doing is to get answers to those questions.
0: I think it's important to lay out I, I, kind of the the pieces here because we're talking about small businesses. We're talking about retail locations. And how is it that your manufacturers, right? Like why why is PMTA dropped on you? And I think it's important that we talk a little bit about the fact that many uh, shops, you know, make a good portion of their income off of an in-house juice, right? An in-house wine. So you're actually manufacturing e-juice. So you, you could be Jewel or you could be you. <laughs> Either way, right. they're applying the exact same uh well, the exact same restrictions or what's their, what's the right word? Um Well, they're making you follow the exact same regulations to prove your product is efficacy and is safe and so forth. So, whereas a jewel or another big company can afford the millions of dollars to do that, you can't and thus you would lose, you know, a key part of your revenue. So, that's one. Right. The other the other one is is that Whatever is left over after the PMTA process uh, goes through, it could leave such a lack of diversity of products that you know local you know vape stores wouldn't even have enough enough product to sell. So fill us in on both of those aspects.
1: Sure. So the first piece that you touched on, it, it kind of reminded me of something that I think is a very good point that that I often discuss when I'm having meetings with various officials is that. You know, to hold a company my size um, to the same standard that Jewel is held to. Is kind of absurd. And and we see in a lot of different um, industries and sectors where there are differing regulations depending on the size of the business. I think banking is a very good example. Um, you know, there is a set of regulations that the big major banks follow. And then there's a different set of regulations that are for, you know, like credit unions, you know, local banks, that sort of thing. And so it's not unheard of what we're asking for. I think I think when it comes to other sectors, the the government is very good at differentiating between big and small. Um, and in a roundabout way, we saw them differentiate between big and small when they did their flavor ban guidance that came out in early February. Um, and so, so that is an issue that it, it is kind of ridiculous for someone who manufactures for their own, you know, small uh, vape shop to be held to the same standard as, you know, a company that's valued in well into the billions of dollars, I, I think is extremely unjust. Um, So that's that's kind of one issue is that it's it's our request is justified and there are other sectors that we can look to where the government does create different regulations for different size businesses.
0: And those what you're asking for is a streamlined PMTA pathway. Explain that.
1: Sure, um, and so that's kind of a, a, a big topic and, and I, I wanna be cognizant of, of being viewer friendly <laughs> in explaining that. Um, so as I said earlier, the PMTA requirement, the appropriate for public health, appropriate for the protection of public health standard was established in that Tobacco Control Act and then we were later added into that in the deeming regulations. Well, there were certain things that were laid out in statute in the Tobacco Control Act that had to be a part of a PMTA. There were other things that were added in by FDA um, that are not statutory requirements that exist anywhere outside of FDA's, you know, guidance documents and their rulemaking process that they that they go through. Um, and so, with the statutory PMTA requirements, those could only be overturned with a literal act of Congress, since they were established by Congress. FDA doesn't have the power to do away with those. But there is a lot that FDA added above and beyond those statutory requirements. And our proposal for a streamlined PMTA um, really involves uh, two main requests. Number one, we're asking that they take a lot of those requirements out and um, simply leave it to the statutory requirements, the things that, that we have to do. But as far as all of the other requirements that FDA added into it, they do have the ability to alter and change those things. And so that is what we're asking them to do as to kind of strip it down to the statutory requirements and to give us extra time to do some of the testing pieces. You know, in what you're showing on your screen right now is the proposal that we've been presenting in D.C., um, and if you kind of scroll through this you see there's a section where we outline um, certain documents that we are able to turn in by the deadline and then there's a final section that deals with those statutory requirements that we're asking for up to two years to turn those in and there's a few reasons for that number one it has to do with expense number two um, you know with covid and everything that's going on in the world right now um, you know laboratories are very Busy supplies um, are stretched pretty thin. There's a bit of a weight to get in with some labs. That's really not a new problem. That's been going on for a while, but it's only been complicated by COVID. And so, you know, we're requesting additional time to to do some of the testing requirements, but... A big, a big part of this is that we could have a hundred years. And I don't think most of us would be able to contemplate things like animal, you know, animal testing and human clinical trials. And so a lot of that is, is just stuff that we're asking to do away with entirely.
0: And it's not like the industry, you know, hasn't been engaged in this process. This deadline has been moved around, you know, endlessly. It was, it was at one point back 2016 and then in 20, I'm not sure exactly. It's been so long now, but it did, it was commissioner Scott Gottlieb at the time, then commissioner who bumped it out to 2022. And then it was drastically moved as a result of a, of a court case last year uh, where the NGOs, uh, the body part groups and that kind of stuff sued FDA and they won. And, and then in a weird, in a weird situation, the judge asked for, asked FDA to recommend amount of time period that they would need in order to affect uh, a, a earlier PMTA deadline. And FDA came back and just said 10 months. Like right. so they, they offered it. It wasn't like the judge said said it and then they agreed to it. FDA just offered it, which meant it would have been May. And then it got moved because of coronavirus. But we're already well past that May deadline. It could have happened then. And so, mm-hmm. you know, there there's been not very good guidance out There's been, actually most people say the guidance has been crap. It's been very horrible. I keep hearing that all the time. I can't judge because I'm not an expert regulatory lawyer, but I keep hearing that it's been insufficient, not quite enough. FDA has kept saying that, well, you know, know, call us and we can help you and the lines of communication are open. Yet I don't know anybody except for the big guys that have managed to get anything through or get any satisfaction with the FDA. Have you experienced any satisfaction with the FDA?
1: Uh, No, this is the short answer to that. I mean, you know, first of all, that's a real issue. What you began discussing there with all of the date changes. Cause as you said, it went from 2016 to 2022 to 2021 to, you know, um, to, to May of this year. And now it's September of this year. And as, as a business owner, it's very hard to plan for something and prepare for something when the goalpost is constantly being shifted on you. And, and um the the guidance that the entire industry was waiting on didn't even come out until june of last year and it was directly in response to that court case had it been had it not been for that court case you know lord knows when we would have actually gotten that guidance um but even that being said you're right there there is a lot of there are a lot of issues with the guidance as it stands i think um fda has a very subjective set of criteria meaning they don't really outline um, what's acceptable and what isn't, and they don't outline their criteria for assessing that. And so, you know, it creates a situation where, you know, company A and company B could turn in the exact same PMTA, but company A gets approved and company B gets denied because there there is no set of objective criteria that exists anywhere to define what constitutes something as appropriate for the protection of public health. And that's that's part of the problem that manufacturers face is that we don't actually I'm gonna to try to think of how to explain this. Think Take the HPHC testing, for example. That's the harmful or potentially harmful constituents. In the guidance, they outline about um, 30 or so chemicals that they want us to do HPHC testing for. That, first of all, that list has changed um, multiple times. That 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 list that exists in that guidance from June of last year is different from previous lists that have come out. And so, you know, that's another example of the goal post constantly moving, but there's, no, there's nothing outlined anywhere that assesses what level of HPHCs are acceptable in a product, right? And so if a business owner knew that kind of objective criteria, they could run some preliminary testing on a product and know if it's even feasible to get into the millions and millions of dollars worth of additional testing on that product. And so it makes it hard to even even make decisions about what products you're gonna run a PMTA on and what products you might not wanna invest that kind of money in, just because that there there are no objective criteria set forth anywhere in any guidance.
0: Well, uh, from what I understand, though, it's very easy to find one of these big highfalutin labs to help you out, isn't it?
1: Oh, oh, yeah. I mean, if you've got millions and millions of dollars, there are labs out there that will line up to take your money. <laughs> um, but, you know, and that's another thing. I mean, there is a certain level of accreditation that labs have to meet to do this PMTA work and the, the labs that have that type of accreditation are the ones that typically do work for big tobacco, big pharmaceutical, giant corporations, and they have price tags to match, you know, and for, for small businesses to find laboratories that are affordable and also meet the accreditation requirements set forth by FDA is a very difficult
0: task. And you've talked to labs, obviously, over the last year. I mean, are, are there actually available labs?
1: Um, there are labs, you know, most of them have a very long waiting list. Um, they're very expensive. I mean, I've, I've gotten multiple quotes from different labs and they're all up in the multi-millions of dollars worth, you know. Um, and, and so it's just, it's not something that, that we can even contemplate with the kind of price tags associated with it.
0: Right, right. So let's jump in then to some stuff that we have from FDA because they do speak on this. Now that Scott Gottlieb is gone, there's a lot less discussion. That man uh, liked to talk about vaping and still talks about vaping quite a bit. I'm not too certain where I sit yet on it. It was really hinky when he left the FDA and he was still speaking so strongly about e-cigarettes one way or the other. It felt like he was a market Mm -hmm. mover and it just felt inappropriate that, you know, an FDA commissioner, former FDA commissioner could have, you know, would have that kind of presence publicly to affect the market. But nevertheless, um, we have a, a bit of audio here from Alex Azar, who's the secretary of, the, of HHS. And he had responded to a vape shop owner who is in the Ohio Vapor Trade Association. So James Jarvis, actually a RegWatch supporter. Hi, James. And he had suggested uh, a question to host Scott Sands and recorded it and so let's have a listen so this is a question to what's the radio station trying to find that here can actually say Ah, there it is uh wspd news radio 1370 in toledo ohio
2: skating to where the puck is going
3: so, I, uh, a question uh, for you, Mr. Secretary, is I happen to, to be a cigar smoker, and I vape sometimes. Some of the new uh, new restrictions that are coming out, both against uh, uh, tobacco and vaping uh... Are, are affecting me personally uh... i would hate to see a a huge increase in taxes on tobacco products like cigars but also the vape industry uh... has a hundred thousand people who work in that that sector with fifteen thousand small businesses around the country and some of the, the president's new restrictions will would eliminate run all of those people out of work uh... what uh, what can be done to move those forward
2: would not would not at all do that just just to reassure you the president has struck a very balanced approach that simply under law, under the statute, which we did not pass, but under the law, um, by May of this year, all e-cigarettes, not all vaping products, just e-cigarettes, which are nicotine delivery devices, are required by law to come in and seek FDA approval. Um, they have been on the market illegally up to this date because right. they've not been approved by FDA.
3: But, Mr. Well, Secretary, there, there are only seven labs worldwide that conduct those PMTA tests, which, which drive the cost uh, to an unreasonable level for these small businesses.
2: Well, actually, that's what Congress passed the law that we have to enforce. The courts were under a court order, actually, that they have to come in and get approval. We're working with small businesses and the vaping association to actually create pathways that would streamline approval for the open tank, small vape shop-based products. Um, Really, the focus of what the president's talked about, what we're focused on are the, uh, the the cartridges, in the, in the systems with kid-attractive flavors, not the open vape systems, uh, the open tank vaping systems. And as to all products, we're committed to working with, with the, all actors in the system to get them through the regulatory process that Congress set up as expeditiously as possible. That, that regulatory process is not something that the president created. Uh, that was created by Congress back in the Obama administration. We just have to implement it.
3: Well, I'm sitting here smoking or vaping on a uh, orange creamsicle vape liquid right now, so I guess I've got a kid flavor. And then tonight I'll have a nice Maduro Padron.
2: All <laughs> right.
3: I'm a pillar of health, as you can tell. <laughs> Mr. Secretary, one more question, and I know we're not here to talk about the impeachment, but I know you spent some time with uh, Ken Starr in the independent counsel's office as as a as a political... So, not knowing exactly
0: where we are here with the rest of that clip, I didn't want to get into any major politics. Um, I think
1: that. that's the end of the section about vaping. There,
0: I think so too. Yes. So, what did you? Th- what do you make of that? Because, you know, he's making clear he's got some really nice language there. You know, we want to just bring them all in. Just bring them in. Just come on in. Come on in, guys. Right. We're well. well, we'll- for, for-
1: Right. Well, first of all, kind of, as you said, like huge shout out to James Jarvis for getting Azar on record answering that question, because we have a tremendous amount of time getting these very high level people on record answering these questions. But I, I think it was an answer lacking in substance. Mm. Um, You know, I it's it's interesting because, the, you know, we we met with HHS, with Secretary Azar, a couple of his top counsel shortly after this interview aired and I was very aware of the interview as most people in the industry were when it happened. And so, you know, I was sitting down in the lobby of the HHS building in DC with my phone up to my ear, listening to this over and over again while I was waiting for my meeting because I wanted to be able to reference what he said word for word as closely as possible. Um, And so it, it was interesting timing because I had the opportunity to ask a couple of his top aides of what exactly the secretary meant by this, and, and what exactly was it that HHS was doing um, to create this amenable pathway for small businesses to get them through these regulations? And, you know, what I have found with a lot of, of these things with the HHS secretary, with the FDA commissioner they have a generic fallback answer. And this is the answer I received in this room when I quoted this interview. Um, You know, they they always reference tobacco product master files, um, bridging, and then their small business office that they have within the FDA. And um, those, they, they always hold that up as if they have now solved the problems of small business with those three things. And, I can tell you right now, that is far from the case, right? Like, is it helpful to be able to utilize a master file? Sure. Is it helpful to be able to bridge information from one product to another? Yes, right? Do they have a number for a small business office you can call and get very unhelpful answers to questions, unhelpful non-answers to questions? Yes, they do. Does that, do those three things put together result in small businesses being able to complete a PMTA? Absolutely not. And there are a lot of people you could ask other than just me. Those three things do not make a PMTA possible for a small business at all. But unfortunately, when FDA and HHS go on record with their vague answers, you know when, when they are pressed for specifics, they always fall back to those three things. And those three things do not get small businesses
0: to market approval at all. And what is a master file?
1: So, okay, so we'll take an example. So in e-liquid, right, there's propylene glycol, vegetable glycerin, flavorings, and there may or may not be nicotine, depending. Um, So, for example, um, you know, um, I can have the, the flavor, one of my flavor providers, um, put in a master file where they've got scientific information on their products that they've done testing on that they've filed with the FDA. And then those suppliers can give me a letter of authorization to reference their master file in my PMTA, right? So I can go and for example, um, I'll just throw out, uh, I don't know if I can name specific companies on here, but let's just say flavor company A has a master file done right? I use that flavor provider in my product. So they give me a letter of authorization, right? I put that in my PMTA. I reference their master file, but I still have to do all of my own testing on the finished product that that flavor goes into. So that that master file might give me some good information, you know, to cite in my PMTA, but it doesn't, it doesn't lessen any requirements on me in testing that finished product that I've used that component in does that make sense
0: yes it does yes and that the idea is that, that you can streamline it I guess through that process explain the bridging
1: um so uh bridging is kind of a complicated topic so um if and it's it's used in a couple of, of different ways, and, and and I've talked to a few different people trying to get a better understanding of this, but um one, one way that the topic is used is like, say I have a product that I make um, in a range of zero to 18 milligrams of nicotine. It's the same product, there's just different nicotine levels. Um, I could test my lowest nicotine level and my highest nicotine level and try to bridge that data to all of the other levels, right? Or I could take a study that exists on a different product that I don't manufacture and, and do a bridging study to say that the data that applies to that product also applies to mine, right? But you see the problem there, I have to do a bridging study, cost money, right? right. Like a bridging studies, are that's not just something that me, Joe Blow, vape owner can do. I have to go hire consultants to do a bridging study, very expensive, and so those things don't really reduce the burden that is on a small business to a substantial degree. You you know, yes, those things are helpful, but they don't dramatically change the playing field at all.
3: Sure.
0: So uh, they make a lot of statements and, and you're exactly right in terms of, you know, kind of non-answer answers. Let's jump over to now the current FDA commissioner and he spoke on July 17th, and Stephen Hahn, Dr. Stephen, Stephen Hahn, is he a doctor? He must be a doctor. They wouldn't hire somebody that's not a doctor, of he course. He is.
1: I think his background's in oncology.
0: Ah, all right. Fair enough. So let's, I just, with Twitter, is going to play here. So let me just make sure we get our audio fine and then start properly. So just give me one second. Actually,
4: tobacco products is. We have heard from small businesses that manufacture tobacco products and vape shops, and we're committed to helping them and all small businesses understand and comply with tobacco laws and regulations. We recognize that small tobacco product manufacturers and retailers sometimes have fewer resources and face different challenges than larger businesses, so we will provide small businesses with support to lessen their burden. On the topic of pre-market tobacco applications, or PMTAs, we've taken several steps to help small businesses with the filing processes, such as offering meetings and holding webinars. Furthermore, FDA published guidance last summer on submitting those PMTAs for electronic cigarette products, including e-cigarettes and similar vaping devices to help these manufacturers navigate the pathway to market. The final guidance highlights several potential cost-saving recommendations to reduce research burdens on the industry and increase efficiency of PMTA preparation and submissions.
0: So noth- nothing there screams out very loudly that the FDA is doing anything to lessen the burden. It just it just sounds like more talk.
1: Right. It's, it's always amazing to me how good politicians and government officials are at saying a whole lot of words that reveal absolutely nothing. It really is a talent, mm. um, you know, in this case, a talent that's not in our favor. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's very similar to that radio clip from Azar in that it sounds fantastic. But, you know, show me right? I hear what you're saying, but show me how we're going to get there. Um, And, you know, when when pressed on these things for specifics, the the answers were never there. Um, And so, you know, I mean, I have a little bit different access to information through talking to people behind the scenes, kind of in non-public forums and people, you know, give a little more specific information in those kinds of settings than necessarily they would in a radio interview or on Twitter. And so I think there's a little more to it happening. um, But, you know, still, I mean, we're, we're coming up against this deadline. Nothing's been put out. You know, there, there hasn't been any kind of update that has come from FDA, HHS, anybody. Um, and so until until there is some concrete action behind all of that, it's just lip service at this point.
0: Now, there was a time there that Mitch Zeller from the FDA was always speaking on this issue. And I haven't heard much from him. Has he been has he been out there? Like what's happened to Mitch Zeller?
1: Um, well, you know, it's interesting because Mitch Mitch Seller has is kind of a complicated figure, right? Because, um, you know, he heads up the Center for Tobacco Products, and he is a part of that FDA machine. But you know, there have been times when, when he's made comments that I think were very positive towards us, you know, in some of those court documents and that, um, that AAP Maryland suit. You know some of um, you know Zeller's comments there. Um, you know acknowledged um, the good that's involved in vaping products about how these products do need to be available for people, and and so in that sense, I mean, um, you know, Mitch Zeller has has said some very positive things. But, yeah, when it comes to PMTA, I mean, I have I got a letter from Mitch Zeller referencing master files and bridging and their small business office. So, you know, they've got they've got a solid talking point going around that circulates about that because they always give the same three things as an answer. You know, and Zeller is on that train as well with those generic answers.
0: Yeah, it's tough. I mean, yes, they had to defend uh, their position. uh, The FDA did. In the documents in court, and they basically made the argument that, you know, vaping is a harm reduction device and there is some benefit. And let's get back to that then, because one of the biggest, hardest sticking points that I've got is that if you take a look at all of the media coverage, it, it is just so poisoned towards vaping. And mm-hmm. if you take a look at the vast majority of the science that comes out, at least the science, of course, that makes it to the mainstream media and then to the public, excuse me, it is all very bad uh, towards vaping. It's junk science or it's suspect science and so forth. So if if the science can't even show that there's a benefit for vaping or the science that does is disregarded, how do they expect thousands and thousands of vape retailers who happen to make a vaping product, you know, an e-juice, to be able to prove that there's a public health benefit to that to that product when when the whole issue is not even sorted out at the highest levels of public health?
1: Right. And, you know, on the topic of scientific research, I mean, you've I I, I know in the past you've had some very wonderful scientists on the show who who really do specialize in this topic. And and I think those people are probably better suited to talk about the science. Um, But, you know, my my observation on the science is who, who funded the study? who funded and ran the study, you know, and and that'll usually kind of tell you what the results are gonna be. Um, but I have noticed that, and I don't know if it's because this PMTA deadline is creeping up or or what's going on, but I have noticed that there are more positive studies coming out in mainstream scientific journals lately than there were in the past. Um, I know there was a recent one um, from JAMA that showed that uh, vaping was 2.3 times more effective than um, at that flavor. I'm sorry. Flavored vaping was 2.3 times more effective than non-flavored vaping for smoking cessation. And, and that was in a very mainstream scientific journal. There have been a, a, like a lot a lot of pretty positive studies coming out lately, but for the vast majority of vaping's history, I would say that science has been weaponized against us. And I mean, anybody that that follows vape Twitter like knows the issues with you know researchers like Stan Glantz and other you know prominent figures that that conduct a lot of these studies and how there's bias involved and all of that sort of thing. I mean, there have been anti-vaping studies that have been retracted for being bad science. It's just it's one of those things that is so hard to fight because you know for for you know every junk science study that gets retracted you know how many more come out a lot and so that's always tough because I think you can find um, science on both sides of the issue but I think what you give credence to is determined by your agenda. At least so far as public health is concerned, you know I, I I see a lot of public health you know cherry picking data that suits their policy goals rather than looking at it from an unbiased perspective. Sure. I think we like to think that science is unbiased, but it's it's not. Once you kind of look at how these studies get funded and conducted and reported but as I said, that is a topic for a scientist. <laughs> I'm just well, a person with an opinion.
0: Well, fair enough. but but as a as a as a manufacturer of a vaping product, you have to deal with the fact that you have to demonstrate that your product has a public health benefit. How do you do Correct. that? How do you How does a loan business prove there's a public health benefit when all of the great scientists that are doing work in this area, the Linda Balds, you know the the, the Pelosa, the Farsolinos, all of that, I mean, they're they get drowned out by the suspect science and the whole anti-vaping machine. I mean, obviously there is some advances happening, but you know, I just don't see how it's p- possible. I don't even how how the regulator could even ask you to do that. To me, is just it's it's just for one, it's insane. Second of all, it's purposeful in terms of to try to destroy your business.
1: Right. Well, you know, I mean, as a part of PMTA preparation, you know, people have been doing scientific literature reviews, you know, that's one of the, the PMTA requirements. And, you know, there, there was a, a scientific literature review that was done by the National Academy of Science, Engineering and Medicine, yeah. Some, somebody I'm sure, I hope I got that right. Uh, I'm sure your viewers are familiar with what I'm talking about. This is a big comprehensive literature review that was, that was put out on behalf of the government. And I know a lot of people are working with that as their starting point. Um, and then, you know, i trying to bring on board all of the literature that's been published since that review was done and, and using that as a basis for that. I know there are companies that have commissioned their own literature reviews from different scientific consultants. And so everybody is kind of going about that in the best way that they can, you know, cause certainly, you know, one thing with the PMTA is you can't present biased information, right? And so, you know, finding a good unbiased uh, review of the science is, is very important
0: important. Allow me to say, Amanda, that uh, you've honed your answering skills there, too, as well. (laughs) How is that? No, just a little, just a little. I'm trying, I'm trying to get you to slam this whole public health, you know, benefit area and, and I'm not, not having a good, you know, not getting to nail you down on that, but that's okay. That's yeah. Okay.
1: I, I, you know, you know, I think maybe I've been hanging around these politicians too long. Cause <laughs> I try to give um, non-divisive answers to things. Usually
0: uh, that's exactly it. So you're learning to, sp- you're learning their speak. Uh, so fair enough. So like, so on that note, let me directly white house people, have you spoken with anybody at the Trump administration at the White House level?
1: Yeah, um, I have a, a few times. Um, you know, we first started meeting with them. Oops, lost an AirPod um, about the uh, federal flavor ban discussion that was going on um, late last year. I think that started in September with a tweet from the First Lady about you know how negative vaping and flavors are, and then that was followed up by some tweets from the president on the topic. And and so it was kind of clear to us that the administration was going to be taking action on flavors, which was interesting because we had kind of scheduled this meeting about PMTA, but this flavor crisis came up. And so we ended up talking about PMTA issues along with the flavor um, issues. And and so um, we've had, I think three different meetings now with with different people in the administration about the topic
2: and
0: then what about what about h hhs
1: yeah hhs i've had a lot of meetings with hhs they're a little bit i mean it's not easy to access hhs but they're easier than the white house as you can imagine the white house is in a lot of demand um but yeah we've we've worked a lot with hhs we've had many 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 meetings with them um starting I want to say in November, late September, early November, around that time up into the present day, we've been meeting with them consistently.
0: And then what about FDA? Has it, And I guess I'm going to put it out there. Has it been a little bit less with FDA or been getting the same kind of? Exposure and reaction.
1: Oh, it's dramatically less. So FDA is is very hard to to meet with and talk to on this topic. Um, you know, if you're a specific company and you're meeting with them to talk specifically about your specific PMTA, you know that's a different thing. But as far as meeting with them to kind of globally talk about the policy of PMTA, um, it's not something that they're interested in. And I, you know, I had. Um, very, very powerful people in the government um uh, trying to arrange for this meeting with FDA and they they simply refuse um you know a part of it i mean this is the subject of of litigation it's a very controversial topic you know FDA really does insulate themselves on this on the pmta and you know general policy kind of issues and so you know our our meetings have been primarily with the administration and then with HHS
0: so Do you think FDA cares about vapors?
1: Do I think FDA cares about vapors? I, yes, but not nearly as much as they should.
0: Or as much as they say they do.
1: Right, right. And I, I think that, um... FDA is used to working with very large companies, right, and that's kind of their comfort zone, right. But when you start talking about, you know, small businesses and consumers, it's a very different story. I think um, we don't necessarily fit in their historical way of doing things. I think, um, you know, for them to have the resources to properly deal with this topic is, is not really in their wheelhouse. Um, so do, do I think they care about vapors to a certain degree, but I think it's pretty limited.
0: And that is tragic, isn't it? Because they're the, they're the regulator. Like you said, they could affect changes here that could save the industry. If they so choose.
1: Right. Absolutely. You know, because, um, FDA they know the science they know the studies that exist that you know they have all of that information um you know we know the statements that they've made about vaping in certain court documents you know they know the value that our products have they know the potential that our products have and they see what we've done already um but just so far as making that fit into their mode of operation i don't i don't think they have a, a the infrastructure for that to be very honest you know i mean all i mean they are going to get a tremendous amount of applications from small business they won't be complete according to that june guidance but there are a lot of people that are filing and i wonder if fda even has the capacity to review those applications properly because i don't believe they have the manpower to do it
0: now do you think that in the end uh the plan here is to really try to close down 14,000 vape shops and put 150,000 people out of work. Like is that what we're going to see happen?
1: Well, it's an open question of what we're going to see happen, right? And can I have a little bit of latitude for a long answer here? Sure.
0: Take it. Okay.
1: Um so we know very well that FDA has over and over again referred to their enforcement discretion, and they even included in their document that came out in February regarding the the flavor ban and pods um, this list of enforcement priorities. And they talk about this all the time that you know kind of when the PMTA deadline comes around, there's not just going to be this wholesale crackdown on the industry that they are going to follow a set of priorities, right? And and obviously their priorities are flavored pods, egregious marketing, basically any product that picks up steam among youth, you know, products that are super popular on social media, um, those sorts of products, I think we'll see FDA take enforcement action on, you know, sooner rather than later. I think we're far down on their list of priorities. But I think there's a couple of problems. Number one, they can't leave us in enforcement discretion forever. I don't think these public health groups will stand for it. They'll just take them back to court over it. And number two, we have this problem where, you know, when the the the, the feds don't take action, um, state and local authorities are more than happy to step in and take that action for them. And so in my personal opinion, it's very, very important that we find a way to move out of the space of enforcement discretion, because I think enforcement discretion is a situation that's temporary at best, um, because, you know, or what if there's a new administration next year? Are they going to feel the same way about those enforcement priorities as the current administration feels about it? Probably not. Um, you know, I certainly know that a lot of states look and see what the feds are going to do about vaping, and then they decide what they're going to do based on lack of action at the federal level. And so, I I, I think. That FDA itself is not going to come shutting people down on September 9th or 10th. But I do think that it's important that we find a viable long-term pathway that is not reliant upon enforcement discretion.
0: So let me make sure that we really hone in on that. So you believe the the vast majority of businesses probably are going to be able to stay open and the feds aren't going to be coming to shut them down but then they're going to be they're the gray area in which they're operating becomes much darker once september 9th rolls around
1: correct because at that point there's a priority list. We're on the priority list. We're just way down there, right? And so, you know, they'll come knocking eventually. And we all know that FDA historically is is not the best at enforcement, right? They take a very long time to take enforcement action. It's very selective when they do it. There are not always um, strong penalties associated with FDA enforcement action in the past. Um, But at the same time, business owners don't want to exist in a gray market, right?
0: No, we, no. we
1: want, we want to exist in a legitimate legal space where we can openly do business. Um, you know, it's, it's not, we don't want to exist on like a wink and a nod from FDA of, Oh, we'll leave you alone till we get around to you. That's, that's no way to operate a business. It's, it's not, it's an untenable situation.
0: Now in the States, it's been a while since I've asked this question. So forgive me uh, for not knowing it. Um, but we certainly asked it in the past. In the U.S., mm-hmm. have have do vape retail shops have the same problems as Canada had in the early days in terms of getting you know credit card services and bank account stuff, um, or is that a okay right now, or is everybody able to get the banking that you need?
1: Um, I my company hasn't had any issues with that. I I do see. Um, Certain people, you know, making social media posts referencing that they're having issues of getting dropped, um, you know, by certain providers that they have. And, you know, insurance, I think, is something that is becoming more difficult for people to find, um, you know, that sort of thing. Merchant accounts, insurance, all of those sorts of things. I, From watching what's happening on social media, I think people definitely are having more problems, particularly since evoli and all of that last year i think that's sort of an ongoing problem
0: and i would think that if, if this does move into a gray or darker area september 9th hits and the media blitz of you know it's now illegal you know i can i can write the language right now you know local vape shop you know breaking federal fda unregulated blah 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 blah. you know picketing i mean the you know just the kind of the kind of local bullying that you know any of these um Public health groups, or even county, local county tobacco control, you know, local city tobacco control groups. I mean, they all, they're all get all of this money from the MSA. It, you know, they've got, you know, legions of young people that have come out of college and they're public health professionals. And I mean, the only thing public health really has is telling people what not to do anymore, except for COVID, but I'm not getting into COVID. Um, so, you know, tobacco control is really the bread and butter of the entire public health business, you know, when it comes to local public health people, the thousands and thousands of people that earn a living based on nagging people about tobacco. So, I mean, I'd be worried about, you know, picketing local kind of pressure that happens as soon as September 9th rolls around and vaping is not legal.
1: Oh, correct. I think all of the anti groups are, are going to have a field day with that PMTA deadline, you know, absolutely making sure, you know, every, everyone in local and state government, you know, gets hammered home with this message of us being on the market illegally. Um, and I, and that's why I think that we can't rely on this enforcement discretion thing. It's a ticking time bomb.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. So, I mean, there's, there are efforts going on out there, uh, other groups and other proposals or your pressure that you're putting on. So, let's just kind of hope and it's like you said when we had our uh when we had our pre-interview on this which was the purge is already underway right? right so it's really you know it's a shot in the dark hope for the best
1: right and you know i think there are reasons to be hopeful um but there's no certainty and so hence the shot in the dark but you know in in all of the communications that i've had with with various people in the federal government um i have a very i have a basis for hope based on on a few things that i know right number 1 i i know that there is a group of people within HHS and FDA that are collaboratively collaboratively working on revamping something for small business. I know that, right? Um, I know that that group is not going to take any one proposal and just sort of rubber stamp it and adopt it, right? But I do know that the various groups that are meeting with HHS about this, with their various proposals, that that working group within HHS and FDA is taking all of that information and taking these proposals and using that to inform the work that they're doing, right? And so, you know I have a proposal that I think is a good idea that I think is a good solution and I've I've given it to them I have presented on it I've answered lots of questions about it I've you know had other people come in and talk about it we've provided lots of letters of support from different um, national and state advocacy groups supporting our proposal Um, they have a lot of input but they're not just taking these proposals from industry and enacting them into guidance that's not how they work you know but if they find something valuable some kind of valuable input in that they're either you know they're taking that into whatever it is that they're crafting And I also know that HHS has received a certain amount of direction from the White House on this topic. You know, from my understanding, the direction that they have been given is to do something to make small businesses sustainable, right, to allow small businesses to continue operation without deviating too much from the original guidance. And that part, is always a dilemma for me, because I don't know how the administration can say, create a path for small business, but don't deviate too much from the original guidance. Because in my opinion, to make a path that is attainable, it would require some pretty significant deviation from the current guidance. Um, but you know, hopefully somebody over there is very creative and can figure out how to make that amen- amenable without deviating too far. And I do also know that HHS has stated that there is this period of time following September 9th where um, they may be able to adjust certain things. Um, And, you know, as for specifics on what that means, I don't exactly know. But what I take from it is if you are a manufacturer in the vapor space, turn in as much as you can by September 9th, because it sounds like. Changes to certain things will be coming, but not in time for the deadline. So get whatever you can. This is my message to vape manufacturers specifically. Get whatever you can turned in by September 9th. Um and and hope for the best. <laughs> you know, take that shot in the dark, turn your stuff in and really hope for the best because I think um, you know, I have pretty decent information that the, that they are reevaluating things and they're actually going to put something behind it. But I don't know to what degree you know, that that is an open question that I am still continuously trying to find out.
0: Yeah, yeah it's a mystery. It's a mystery wrapped up in an enigma covered in secret sauce. Exactly. And that's the way regulators like to do it. Amanda, thank you so very much for coming on the show and explaining some of this, these issues here for us. Just hang tight for us uh, for a minute. And I just want to uh, address everybody over to our new fundraiser. This is our Fall Fight 2020. It's a Facebook fundraiser we're running. And I'm just going to read the promo copy here. Science promises that over time, rigorous methodological study shall reveal the truth. Yet the science on vaping is a technology that has grown more distorted and political with each passing year. So this fall, RegWatch celebrates our fifth anniversary, holding researchers, regulators, and reporters to account. And we need your help to continue our vaping coverage. No matter the destruction wreaked by bad science, ideologically possessed public health, and malevolent politicians the industry will survive and i think we got a little bit of that from amanda tonight we've heard that globally that the that the train has left the station on vaping and it looks more and more likely that the united states of america is dragging itself so far behind that it's embarrassing and it's going to cost lives we know that and so regardless of what happens through product bans taxation industry killing regulation right the threat will still be there. The promise of vaping will still be there and we will still be covering it. Your financial support is crucial to help fund our coverage in the coming months. It's a big ask. I know we're looking for about 10 grand, which is really nothing, but that is what we're, it's a right ask to get us through the US election. And Watch is growing. As you can see here, uh, Cindy Schmidt is now with us officially as senior producer and legal analyst. Some of you know uh, and have heard from her and our shows, and she is just fantastic. She's a lawyer an exceptional talent, a dedicated advocate, and she's already made a dramatic impact on our coverage. So consider making a financial contribution to RegWatch coverage. You can do that on the, Facebook, on the Facebook promo, which you'll be seeing that everywhere. Let me just close that so you can see, just the standard Facebook. And if you go to our support site, there you can do the all important monthly support and watch our watch it not get there very quick so there you go so go to support.regulatorwatch.com and consider making a financial contribution hopefully monthly would be fantastic and if you're an american your american dollars go so far in canada please american greenbacks we love you (laughs) and that is it for this edition of regwatch before you head off please like us on facebook and don't forget to follow us on twitter for regulatorwatch.com and as i find our closing for regulatorwatch.com I'm Brent Stafford, and thanks to Amanda Wheeler.